Hello, I'm Keith, and this is my dad, Kerwin. Welcome back to Father and Son, a Star Wars podcast. Continuing the series where we celebrate the Academy Award-winning composer John Williams, who turns 90 years old in February. Our guest for this episode is a legend in classical music. For 40 years, Anne Hobson Pilot was a principal harpist for the Boston Symphony Orchestra, the first African-American to perform in the orchestra. Ms. Pilot's extensive solo career includes performances with orchestras in Europe, Haiti, New Zealand, and South Africa. She is a recipient of the Honorary Doctor of Music degree at Tufts University. Her numerous awards include an Honorary Doctor of Fine Arts degree from Bridgewater State College, the Distinguished Alumni Award from the Cleveland Institute of Music, the Lifetime Achievement Award from the Boston Musicians Association, and the Lifetime Achievement Award from the Talent Development League of the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. Anne Hobson Pilot, welcome to Father and Son, a Star Wars podcast. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Thank you. We are so glad to have you. Uh, when I was researching your life story, I was excited to learn that you were actually born and raised in Philadelphia. Um, I'm a Temple grad, uh, so I've oh, lived, in, uh, I lived in Philadelphia for a good number of years. Uh, where in Philadelphia did you grow up? Well, I grew up in West Philly. Then we lived in Germany for close to four years. My father was in the Army. And then when we came back, we moved into, oddly enough, Germantown. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so you started learning music playing the piano what made you want to taste the heart well my mother was a concert pianist and my older sister played the piano and basically I wanted an instrument instrument of my own you know I wanted to be different some something that was different especially all my friends if they played anything they usually played the piano so uh when I went to the school, I went to a, the Philadelphia High School for Girls, which had, um, which offered all of the orchestral instruments. And when I spoke to the teacher at the school, I, I explained that I was gonna switch from piano to another instrument. And she said, why not try the harp? Because it's similar reading, treble and bass clef, you use both hands. And so I said, sure, I'll give it a try. And, and uh, so that's how I started the harp. And, from the first day, I really loved it and, and enjoyed it. Uh, some of your earliest performances were playing the harp for pop musicians and pop singers. What are some of the pop singers that you played with? Well, the first one was Johnny Mathis. Um, so I started the harp when I was 14, but when I was 18 and a student at the Philadelphia Musical Academy, I was offered um, asked if, I, if I'd be interested in performing with the orchestra or small group of players that was accompanying Johnny Mathis at the Latin Casino in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. And I mean, if they asked me today, I would say yes. But when I was 18, I was ecstatic to play behind Johnny Mathis. So it was a real thrill. And I also played, uh, accompanied Andy Williams and Peggy Lee and some, some other 
some other artists. Tell us about your mentor, Edna Phillips Rosenbaum. How did you meet her and how did she change the direction of your career? Well, when I studied, started the harp at Girls High, um, the harp world is very small, especially, especially in Philly. And she took an interest in all of the students there. And my teacher at the time, Marianne Costaldo, was a student of hers. Marianne Costaldo told Edna Phillips about me and she really took an interest in me and met me and even gave me a few lessons. And then she, she was, uh, was interested in me going to Cleveland to study with Alice Shalafu, who was a very famous harp teacher at the time um, at the Cleveland Institute of Music. So she was on the board of the Philadelphia Foundation and arranged for me to get a full tuition scholarship to Cleveland Institute. And in 1966, you were offered the job of principal harpist uh, with the Washington National Symphony Orchestra. And there you broke the color barrier and became the first African-American to perform in the symphony. You were there for three years during the height of racial tension in America. What did you experience during those years in regards to discrimination and how were you able to stay focused with your work? Well, yes, uh, I was the first and only African-American at that time. Um, the discrimination existed mostly outside of the, the orchestra. Um, the, or the orchestra being in Washington, <clears throat> when we toured, we mostly toured down south. I mean, there was no reason to go north when you had the Philadelphia Orchestra, the New York Phil, or the Boston Symphony. So we would go south. And that's when um, some of the, the, the issues arose where as far as eating restaurants and even um, they had to get special permission for me to stay in the hotels that where the, the, the orchestra stayed. But uh, as far as the, my colleagues there, um, and the, you know, I, I knew that there, there were some players that were not happy that I was there, but I never really had any uh, disagreements with, with anyone in the three years that I was there. And Arthur Fiedler, who was the well-known conductor of the Boston Pops at the time, um, substituted for uh, the conductor there at the National Symphony. He was a guest conductor. And afterwards, you had a meeting with Arthur Fiedler, and he mentioned that there was an opening uh, for a harpist on the Boston Pops. Now, you must have admired your work, um, and I'm sure he he admired it so much that he wanted to initiate a meeting with you. What did he say about your performance? What did he enjoy about your performance as a harpist? Well, he had been guest conducting the National Symphony um, at least two out of the three years that I was there. So he knew my, my playing by that point. And they had actually had an audition for the Boston Symphony and the Boston Pops. And they were not happy with the the, the finalists, which he knew, and he wasn't happy with them. So he wanted, he liked my playing um, and, uh, you know, thought, uh, thought it was a good idea for me to come to take the, uh, the, the audition. There was going to be another set of auditions coming up the, I guess it was the following year. So, uh, I spoke to my teacher and to some other people who basically said that the Washington National Symphony 
wonderful as it is, will never be the BSO. So they recommended that I go and apply and audition for it. And that, that was during the days had just started auditioning behind the screen. I'm sure you've heard of that. Um, and so I went there and took, took off my high heeled shoes so they wouldn't tell I was a, a woman and it was all behind a screen. And um, actually when I played, the committee, which was behind the screen and couldn't see who was playing, asked the question, is that the same harp that everybody else is playing? Which of course they said, yes. So I assumed that was a compliment and I guess it was because they offered me the job. <laughs> and, and behind the screen, the, the idea was that they couldn't see who the person was performing. So the only thing that they can um, uh, monitor in regards to performance is at the actual performance, not the person who's playing the actual instrument. So that way to uh, avoid discrimination, is that the idea of the behind the screen? Exactly, back in that, that year was 1969. And back then, I mean, the orchestra was, the orchestras were 90, what, 98% white males. And they knew that they would, would have to open that, that up and start having women and you know, pe people of color, hopefully. Um, so that, that was their, their way of trying to be fair about it, that have everybody behind a screen and uh, that therefore there could be no di discrimination. And interestingly enough though, what, what ended up happening um, when I joined the BSO in 1969, I was one of four or five women. And after about 10 years, well, let's say now, there are about 40 women, but still one person of color. Mm. So for, for some reason it uh, increased the number of women, but not necessarily the, the people of color yet. I'm, I'm, I think that with, with uh, groups like Project Step and Sphinx, I think that, uh, that, that all of that will eventually change. It was, has been a long time. <laughs> So you auditioned for the job um, at the BSO and you were offered the job. Did you accept the position immediately or did you want to give it some time to think about it? Well, I did not accept it because I was principal harp in Washington. And this was basically, it was principal with the pops, but it was basically second harp with the BSO. And so I, <clears throat> I did not accept it at first, but then they sweetened the pie a bit and made me assistant principal harp. And then when the principal harpist um, left in 1980, um, they decided to make me principal harp. Uh, they just moved me into the, the, the position without hiring a second harpist for me. So I was the only harpist under contract. Um, <clears throat> at the age of 26, you became the first African-American to join the BSO. Tell us about your experience working with the BSO. Well, the, the BSO um, was such a, is such a, you know, wonderful uh, institution. And so I expected the same kind of treatment that I got in Washington, which was basically, um, you know, re respect and not, and not uh, finding any difficulty with my colleagues. But uh, just, I think it was last year for the first time, I, I tell the story on my TED talk of my first day on the job. 
I don't know if you heard that story, where, uh, where uh, I went to the, the first rehearsal and I got there early because I wanted to tune up and warm up and all of that. And uh, this, this older man came up to me, came rushing up to, to me and I expected him to say, welcome to the orchestra or some such polite thing. Instead, he said, you must fry some mean chicken. <laughs> and I looked at him and said, yeah. mm -hmm. and said excuse me? Yeah. And he said it again and, and again. And, and finally, I mean, I didn't really know what to, to say. And, and finally, I said something probably ridiculous, like, well, as a matter of fact, I do. But every time I saw him after that, he had to say something regarding race, like, well, you know, I, I used to play in, in, in the Porgy and Bess Orchestra and all the black folks had to go in the, the rear door and thing, things like that. So I knew that whenever he saw me, all he saw was color. But, and, and other, other things happened, like I was once called the N-word in front of a bunch of, of uh, uh, of people and I took the guy aside the next day and I said don't you ever use that word in front of me again and he said well I was just making a joke Rich Richard Pryor uses it all the time and I said you're not Richard Pryor and I don't I don't you know um, expect you to ever use that again and he apologized and fortunately never did use it again so there were issues like that and I think because I think it really helped being a woman because there wasn't the, the confrontation that two men might have had. And I think in the end, I, I was able to hold my own and, and was re respected the entire time that I was there. So that was good. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you hear those rude comments over time, they must have been, uh, well, obviously hurtful for you, but, you know, you didn't allow that to stop you from continuing to be the best harpist that you could be in that orchestra. But I'm wondering as an outlet, you know, when you hear those, um, those stories or you know, experience those stories or those jokes from uh, people, who do you talk to? I mean, who do you have, who did you have at the time to lean on um, to just talk about your day and to just vent about what happened and then let it out, let it go and then get back to work the next day? Well, back then, I don't think that that was before I met my, my husband. We got married in 1980. So back then, I kind of um, really didn't have anyone. I, I didn't talk about it with my parents. I basically didn't talk about it with, with anyone. But I mean, I think it's funny. I think it's funny. And to this day, I think it's funny that someone could be so ignorant mm to say some, some, something like, like that. And if you can approach it with a sense of humor, then it takes some of the, the sting out, out of it. Then in 1978, I met my husband, who's a musician also. He played um, string bass, which he was playing with a little jazz group when I met him. And then he also started playing with the Boston Pops and he played with the uh, Esplanade Pops for 22 years. So he knew all of the players that I knew. So there was definitely a shoulder to lean on and someone to talk to about it after that. Uh, what was it like working with Arthur Fiedler? Arthur Fiedler was 
a character, <laughs> a real character. He, he obviously was, was wonderful for the Boston Pops. He's the one that started the Boston Pops and, and introduced a lot of people to classical music. But he was, he was a character. I remember my first day. I mean, I, I, had, I had worked with him in Washington, as I said. But when he came to guest conduct an orchestra, he was different than he was with his own Boston Pops. So my first day <clears throat> at the Boston Pops rehearsal, I was sitting there and uh, all of a sudden I saw a paper airplane fly across the room <laughs> and then a, 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 another one. So, I mean, the, the people in the Pops love to rib him and to tease him and to give him a hard time. And, and uh, he would always, you know, get hysterical and storm off the stage. And so it, it was a real uh, in, interesting time with Arthur Fiedler. Well, Arthur Fiedler uh, passed away in 1979. And by 1980, you were the principal harpist for both the BSO and the Boston Pops. And then came a new principal conductor. How was John Williams received as a new conductor of the Pops? And did the musicians believe he was a good fit for the Pops? I think it took a while for them to appreciate him. I mean, I did. I appreciated him from day one. Um, I could see, you know, such, such a difference from Art, Arthur Fiedler that uh, he, he, definitely, he, he definitely had the respect of the, the players, but some of the players thought they, from, you know, um, they, they, they thought that they were better than having to play pops music. That's kind of what was going on with, with Fiedler. So when John Williams came, he of course uh, um, played a lot of his own music. And some, some of them looked down on that. They thought they should be playing Beethoven and Bach and Brahms all, all the time. But uh, so he had a little difficulty at first, but I think eventually the, the players realized who he is and what he's done as far as music is concerned, as far as film music is concerned and just music in general. So he definitely has a lot of respect now. And even at coming up on 90 years old, as you know, he still goes back to Boston to guest conduct the orchestra and to Tanglewood. So I think it's just incredible. Um, what are your favorite collaborations with John Williams? Well, of course, the, my real fa favorite one is when he wrote the harp concerto for, for me um, on Willows and Birches. Uh, that actually came from uh, Jimmy Levine, who was the music director at the time of the BSO. Uh, I had decided I wanted to retire from the BSO. In about 2007, I went to Jimmy and explained that I was going to retire. And he said he really hoped I would stay at least for a few years because he was taking the orchestra on a European tour in 2008 and was taking some Mahler symphonies along that he uh, has have a lot of heart. And so he really hoped that I would stay. So I agreed to stay through 2009. And he was so happy about that, that he said to me, what would you like for a retirement gift? And I said, I thought about it and said, I, I think it would be nice to have another harp concerto writ written. 
because at the time there were not a lot of them. And he said, who would you like to write it? And again, I thought, and then I said, John Williams. And uh, we asked John, or he asked John, we asked John. And John said, I couldn't possibly do that. The harp is too difficult to write for and all. But we finally convinced him. And I mean, it was such a wonderful experience for, for me to be able to work with him one-on-one. -on -one. Um, he, he doesn't do email, he doesn't email pe people. So, but he does do snail mail. So when we had to collaborate on, he had a lot of questions, well, will this work, will that work? He would send me some, some, some mail and ask those questions. I would run to the mailbox and there's another letter from John Williams. And that was always very exciting. And one, one of them he signed, you know, I'm your biggest fan. Mm. Beautiful. <laughs> Beautiful. Yes, on willows and birches. Um, were there any other uh, compositions written by John Williams or performed by the BSO Orchestra that you're also um, excited to play or were one of your favorites? Well, one of my favorites is Schindler's List um, because he wrote such a, an extensive harp part. So Itzhak Perlman, of course, was the, the, the soloist there, but he wrote a very nice harp part. As a matter of fact, he called my home and, and explained that he was going to write this extensive harp part. So I was made aware of it in advance. And even, even now, I, I sometimes, um, I, I had an arrangement written for just violin and, and harp of Schindler's List music. And uh, even now, I, I, I love to play that, that piece. It's such a beautiful piece. Beautiful piece, yes. And um, just going back to when you retired in 2009, um, you did retire after 40 years of performing with the Boston Symphony. And you mentioned about the concerto that John Williams wrote for you called On Willows and Birches. Can you take us back to that evening when you first performed that concerto? How was it? Um, how did you feel? Well, um, as I said, I, I worked with John on it uh, both remotely with his letters and then a few weeks before the performance, we got to, together and uh, I played the piece for him. And there, there's even a little film clip on, on uh, the film with me and John Williams and Jimmy Levine conducting. As a matter of fact, I brought, can you see this picture here? Yes. You can with Jimmy and John. Yeah. And, uh, um, but about a week before the performance, I said to John, as we were working on it, I said, you know, I think I'm going to try to play this from memory. And he was absolutely floored. He said, you're going to do what? And I said, yeah, because it's just so complicated on the harp with trying to turn pages in addition to everything else you have to worry about the pedals and, you know, all of that. So um, it also makes me feel as if I know the piece better if I don't have to worry about the, the music. So he of course came to the, the, the opening night performance which was at Symphony Hall. And he might've been more nervous than I was <laughs> of expecting me or hoping that I wouldn't for, forget, but it went really beautifully. And, and he seemed to be very, very happy afterwards. And of course, the next performance was at, at Carnegie Hall. And unfortunately, uh, Jimmy had gotten ill 
and was not able to conduct that. So they used Danielle Gatti, but that, that also went, went, went very well. It was, it was obviously very exciting for, for me and thrilling to be able to play a piece by John Williams that no one else had ever played at that point. Truly really an honor. Wow, what an accomplishment. Uh, you're also a music teacher. Please tell us about Project STEP and other ways you're training students of color to perform classical music. Yes, Project STEP is a string training program. So it's really only for, even though the harp is more strings than any other instrument, 47 strings, it's not considered a string instrument. String instruments um, are considered such those that use a bow. So violin, viola, cello, and bass were all part of Project STEP. And as a matter of fact, my husband was the first artistic administrator of Project STEP. And he was able to find young, talented Black kids um, who did not have the ability to um, get a very good instrument or get a very good teacher. And so that was the start of Project Step back in, I think it was 81 or 82. And it's still going strong. Um, they've had some very su successful uh, stu students that have, have come out of it. And also the other uh, organization that I really respect is the Sphinx organization, which is, I think they were influenced by Project Step. So it's a little bit newer. But they also um, they they also stick mainly with string players, and the the reason these kind of groups stick with string players is because string players, of course, is the largest body of instruments in a, a, a symphony orchestra, and they're trying to train young young people to be symphony musicians. Yeah, my two sons are actually learning to play instruments for the first time this year. Keith has learned the flute. And my younger son, Maceo, is learning to play the cello. Oh, wonderful. And what advice could you give these aspiring musicians? Well, I guess the best word is practice. <laughs> Just continue to practice. And if you find you really enjoy it, that's, see, that, that's why I became successful as a harpist, because I really enjoyed practicing the harp. I did not enjoy practicing the piano when I was young. And so I was not successful at it. But, you know, it is no secret that the music just isn't going to pop into your head and your hands. You have to really work at it just as you do anything, you know, um, sports, you know, those, those, do you like sports, Keith? Uh, sort of. Okay. Not really. Well, sports person, but I do enjoy basketball or football. I, I enjoy basketball very much. Uh, and so we were watching Steph Curry last night trying to, to, to break Ray Allen's record. And you could see him before the game shooting one three-pointer after another. And that's the kind of practice I'm talking about that you really have to prepare yourself. And if you want to pursue music, then that's, that's the best word I can think of. Now, I understand that you will never retire from playing the harp. So what is next for you? Do you have any upcoming projects? Well, um, 
I actually had did a project with Sarasota Contemporary Dance where of the music where we played the music of Piazzolla, Astor Piazzolla, an Argentinian composer whose music I fell in love with basically right, right after I retired from the BSO. And uh, unfortunately he didn't write for her. Uh, so I had a former student of mine, Michael Maganuco uh, wrote some arrangements for violin and harp and flute, flute and harp. And then we added a bandonian. Keith, do you know what a bandonian is? Nope. <laughs> it's, like a, it's like an accordion. They call it like a button accordion. Instead of having keys on the side, it has buttons on the side. And it was, it's an Argentinian instrument. It was actually the instrument that Piazzolla played. So we got a trio together for violin, bandonian, and harp, and we we did. Uh, it actually turned into a film of music to accompany the dancers from Sarasota Contemporary Dance, mm -hmm. and that was very exciting for for me. And she wants to do it again in various cities, so that would be my next project at this point. After I retired from the BSO, I decided to pursue more the music of Astor Piazzolla, whose music I had always loved. Lamus Hurd, who was the director of the Sarasota Contemporary Dance, and she was all excited about the music, so she choreographed an entire evening of dancing to this music. This performance was one of the things I enjoyed most in all of my however many years of, of playing because it was so much fun working with the dancers and just being absolutely astounded at their abilities and how they coordinated with the music of Piazzolla. This has been a truly an honor to speak with you. Um, you are definitely a legend. Um, in my opinion, I, I believe you're an unsung hero and that there should be more books written about you. Um, and uh, I'm, my hope for this interview is that people get to see it or listen to it and know how much you've contributed to American music. Well, thank you very much. Yeah.
Yeah, so we are really, truly honored to have you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Uh, where can people find you? I'm sorry, you said what? Where can people find you? You have a website? I have a website, anhopsonpilot.com. And there's also some YouTube videos about me. I think if you just put in Ann Hobson Pilot Harpist, you can find that. Okay. Absolutely. And then Keith, where can people find us? Well, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Radio Public, Amazon Music, Audible, Spreaker, or wherever you get your podcast. Yes, and we also have a YouTube channel. If you are not a subscriber, please do so. If you like um, the material that we provide, please subscribe. We're also on Facebook. Please like, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Once again, and oh, wait, don't forget our website, fatherswingalaxy.com. That is correct. Once again, thank you very much, Ann Hobson Pilot, uh, legendary harpist for the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you. Very, very nice to meet you both. All right. Thank you. Happy holidays to you. Um, you. Until next time, everyone, take care, and we will see you again. <laughs>